McMaster University has over 210,000 alumni living in 140 countries around the world, and they are some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. Unconventional will introduce you to some of our alumni who are working to make our world a brighter place in their own unique way. Join me, Karen McQuig, Alumni Director at MAC, as we meet alumni in the arts, cutting edge entrepreneurs, alumni leading the way in health, technology, education, and more, as we learn the moments that their path from MAC became unconventional. Since graduating from McMaster eight years ago, Collins Oghart has obtained a joint doctor of medicine and master of surgery degree, started and built a cult classic menswear fashion brand and boutique in Montreal, performed global health research, and most recently advised governments and NGOs on public health and infrastructure across Africa. As he would put it, not too shabby. Join me today as we meet Collins Agar and learn a little bit more about his unconventional path since graduation from McMaster. So thanks for joining us today, Collins, and uh, welcome back virtually to Mac to, for this conversation. I should maybe ask you, where are you located right now? Because I don't think you're actually in North America. <laughs> no. Um, so, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure um, to be back at Mac anytime, even if it's virtually. And uh, you're right, I'm, I'm, I'm currently in Lagos, Nigeria um, at the moment. And so, so what are you doing in Lagos, Nigeria? I should maybe start before we get into the sort of the questions <laughs> we've got. Like, what are, you know, uh, when did you get there and, and why are you uh, hanging out there these days? Yes. So I was, I, I, I grew up in Lagos. Um, so I'm, I'm Nigerian. Um, I was an international student at Mac. I moved to Canada when I was 17, you know, went to Mac and then went to McGill. Got my um, doctor of medicine, master of business administration degree, um, and then uh, last year in 2019, I decided to move back to back to the African continent. So I, I was recruited by a management consultancy firm, uh, McKinsey and Company, uh, to move back to the continent to work on global health, um, public health projects across the continent, and a bit of infrastructure development as well. Um, so that's what pulled me back originally. Um, and then after about a year, I, I left McKinsey because I had, for a bunch of reasons, but ultimately I had like this idea um, or I would really appreciated this problem across the continent um, that had been nagging me for a while. And it's um, just around the support that people with kidney failure um, get. Um, so, so yeah, so I left and um, a few months, a couple of months ago, I started a, a, a new company, like a healthcare um, mm -hmm. technology startup um, that's focused on supporting people with kidney failure and with the ultimate ambition of, of, of building what will be the first local um, dialysis sort of manufacturing um, facility on the continent with the aim of bringing down the cost of, of kidney failure treatment by five times by 2030. So that's what's uh, keeping me in Lagos right now at the moment. Well, it sounds like it's keeping you busy. So was that... Um... <laughs> Uh, kidney disease was that your sort of your specialty when you were studying medicine or something you had a passion with or is it come from a personal story yeah no, no yeah so so actually it wasn't it wasn't at all like it wasn't my specialty um when i when i when i was a medical student um i did research a lot of research in global health and the focus of my research was in tuberculosis um tuberculosis diagnostics specifically um, right, but with with uh, chronic kidney disease, why you know I started leaning towards that, and why I really zeroed zeroed in on that was that um, my aunt 
um, when I was when I was growing up, I was about 12 years old. My aunt um, had kidney failure. And, you know, I saw kind of what the struggles were in the family trying to get her treatment, very expensive and, and all of that. Um, ultimately, I remember very vividly, I used to go with her to her dialysis treatment. Um, and it was at a, a hospital in Lagos called St. Nicholas Hospital. And that's a very, that's the clearest, earliest memory I have of being in a hospital. So that's so like, there was sort of a poignancy around chronic kidney disease for me. Um, and then also like just elements of the disease, right? Like a lot of it is around lifestyle management. Um, and one of the, one of the things I got really passionate about um, through medical school was just, you know, the importance of exercise of, of a healthy lifestyle on actual health, right? And I became um, very upset, I, I guess could be, could be the word I could use there around um, how healthcare generally is, is, is kind of the direction it's going, right? Where a lot of it is sick care, not healthcare. So anyways, you put that together and I really became um, very, very, very interested in non-communicable diseases, right? Or some, what they sometimes call silent killers, right? Which are, you know, kidney failure is one of them where 85% of people, um, they don't know they have anything wrong with their kidneys until they're at the point of kidney failure where they need dialysis or transplant. Um, so anyways, putting that together and then starting to do a lot of research into it, the, the trajectory for where Africa is going right now with this, with this illness is, is very scary. And I just really like felt this urge that I, you know, I had to bring together people who care about this problem and, and start trying to solve it right away. So yeah, that's the, that's kind of the link. <laughs> So you're, uh, you were an international student to McMaster. So, and mm -hmm. you grew up on the African continent and then you mm -hmm. ended up in Hamilton, Ontario at McMaster. Yeah. Why yeah, don't yeah. you tell us a little bit about that journey? Why, like, how did you end up at Mac? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. So <laughs> it's funny. I think I, I, I told this story once to the, to the president of Mac while I was a student and, and he couldn't stop laughing. But, but basically what happened was this. So I, I grew up, like you said, I grew up in Nigeria. When I was 17, I moved to Toronto. Um, I did like grade 12 there. Um, and then I, you know, I applied to U of T, Racine, um, Waterloo, McMaster. Right. And I got I was very fortunate. I got into all I got offers from all schools and I was like I was in Toronto. I was happy. I loved it there. Vibrant city and all that. And I was definitely going to University of Toronto. Um, but it so happened that my eldest sister, um, who's two years older than me, she was already at McMaster which for me was further motivation not to go to McMaster because I knew she, she was going to try to <laughs> try, <laughs> try to keep an eye on me. Yeah, yes. exactly. The, um, older, the older sibling, especially the sister, keeping an eye on you, Gongs. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and, and so I attend, you know, I actually, I go visit her um, on campus, right? And you're having these events. She was in, uh, in chemical engineering and you're having these events like where people are in like the overalls and people are having fun. And it was just like a big party going on on campus. And I was like, is this school? Right. And, <laughs> and I just got, I just got involved in one of the parties. And on, I remember on the go bus going back to Toronto that evening, I was like, man, I love that school. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And later that night, I called her. I was like, "Yeah, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna come to McMaster." Oh wow! So did yeah. she did she keep an eye on you, or did you uh, were able no, to forge your own path? She, she tried, but I uh, I, I, I forged my own path. That's for sure. 
So yeah. let's go back to your, your undergraduate days. Were you one of mm-hmm. um, our students who had a master plan of how your career would, you know, your career would lay itself out? And, you know, uh, if you did, what would the master plan look like? Or, or maybe you weren't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. Um, so I had a master plan since I was 10 years old. <laughs> yeah, but um, so so yeah, so this was the master plan, right? The master plan was kind of you know I'll go to Mc, I'll go to McMaster and then go to medical school afterwards and then um, you know get into a residency. At the time, I thought I wanted to do neurosurgery. Um, you know, get into residency. I haven't had like a timeline on when I would get married, when I would have kids and all of that. Like I had this master plan, um, and then I would sort of you know work, um, you know build my career in, 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 in medicine, um, in, in us and Canada for 20 years or whatever. And then when my family, my kids were at a certain age, then I would move back to back to Nigeria, back to Africa, um, and do what I ultimately always wanted to do, which is to sort of build a healthcare, a healthcare company, um, you know, that solves very, very important access to healthcare problems here, um, on the continent. So that was my master plan. And I'm happy to tell you that it is not going according to that master plan, which is fantastic, though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, when you harken back, so maybe this is a question for when you finished your degree at McGill, because if, if I recall mm-hmm. correctly, you finished at Mac and then you went right to McGill to do your, your, M, uh, your MD and your MBA combined. So mm-hmm. think about when you were done school, what were your first few months like as a new graduate and how did you transition from academic life to, you know, as we so say, you know, the real world? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good question. Right. I, I think the, the, the big sort of, of shift for me um, at the beginning was just as, as a student, you, I just felt like I had a lot more control over my time. Mm-hmm. Right where it was like, okay, if I'm gonna slack off for the next two weeks, I'm gonna slack off for the next two weeks, and I'll make up for it later on, right? Um, and then sort of being in the real, real world again, like you call it, um, it just felt like I I was constantly, you know, having to sort of, you know, be on point every single every single time. Um, and for me, that was a bit that was a bit of an adjustment. Um, I think another big, big shift too was like, you know, I I guess it's it's also related to this where like in a school environment, you know, when you're going to get tested, right? Like, you know, when the examinations are coming and you can plan towards that, right? But in quote unquote, the real world, the tests are impromptu, right? So you always have to be, you know, you're always sort of being tested, right? So you always have to be at your A game. You have to, you know, really know what you're, what you're working on, what you're talking about, and you're constantly selling. Right. Whether you're selling yourself, whether you're selling ideas to, you know, um, to people you want to who are working under you or people working above you or whether you're selling products or whatever it is. Right. Like you're constantly in that sales process. One thing that sticks out when I look at your CV is the variety. So doctor, researcher, entrepreneur, advocate. So number one, do you sleep and how do you and juggle and, and where does the variety or the, the passion for all of these come and, and how, how do they all fit together? Or maybe they don't. Or is there five different versions of yourself? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, to be, to be perfectly fair, right? Like that's something that um, I haven't been acutely aware of until people bring it up. 
right? Um, and oftentimes people bring it up in the context of like, you know, like, dude, just, you know, pick one thing, right? Uh, <laughs> um, but, but for me, for me, the thing, the, the honest fact, um, Karen, is that I never stopped being a child, right? For better or for worse, right? You know, kids, like you ask them, you know, what do you want to be? Today, yeah. it's a politician. Tomorrow is a doctor. The next day, it's a nurse. The next day, it's a pilot, right? And I've just always had that sort of approach to life where it's like, if something speaks to me, right? Like if I'm really interested in something, I go for it. I put in the time, I put in the effort, um, I learn about it and, 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 I, and I go for it. So I have, I guess, in a sense, been sort of controlled by that childishness, naivete if you want, but also just like following my heart really, right? It's like, I, I have tried at least, like I don't do things with a certain intentionality to them, right? It's just really about sort of following my heart and being in that moment. Um, and then sort of coming to that question of where it all fits in, right? It's actually now that I'm really starting to appreciate where it all fits in, mm -hmm. where I'm sort of at a point now where I'm kind of on the cusp of, you know, building what could potentially be a very important organization in Africa, or just in terms of healthcare. And I'm realizing that I have to, in my role, like in what I'm trying to do right now, every single day, I have to wear every one of those hats. Right. Like I have to be the PR guy. I have to obviously be the researcher and do the research. I have to also ha understand the clinical side of it and attend like, you know, clinical meetings. And I have to be the advocate, right? Because my patients are, are, are people that I, I really care about and the, the organization we're trying to build actually cares about them. So we have to speak to government officials as well and try to understand what is available for them in terms of resources. Right. Um, so and I have to do all of these things. Right. And at the same time, I also have to be a designer in a sense. Right. Because I'm thinking of how we can create technology that will be useful in people's lives. Right. And so, yeah. So so I think that's really sort of where it's it's coming to the fore, where as a leader, you kind of have to wear all of these different hats. So, um, you know, long story short, I'm very, very glad that I've sort of been that that way, um, whether you want to call it versatile or diverse. I, I don't know. But yeah, it's just yeah, that's that's uh, it, it's good to start to see it all come together, I guess. Well, you know, I really admire, I, I noticed that in, in our young graduates today. When I graduated from Mac, it was, you graduated and you looked for a job and not that many mm. people went to grad school. So you basically like you graduate and it's like, okay, now you got to go find a job. And it's mm -hmm. like one, one career path. And one of the things I've noticed over the last number of years is that students who graduate, young people who graduate today, it's, it, they, they're able to find the balance between, you know, work and their passion and how they build them in and take those opportunities and take risk. Like, I think your generation takes a lot more risk than we did when we graduated. So have you always been risk tolerant or um, is it you've had to learn that or, or you just don't think of it as taking a risk? It's like feeding the passion that makes you want to get up every day. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to say I'm, I'm risk tolerant. Right. But um, I think that the, the truth of the matter is, like you said, I don't really take take it as, as risk. Right. So, so there's this there's this concept of you know, something could be scary, but it, it's not dangerous, right? Versus something could be dangerous, but it's not scary, right? And for me, what is dangerous is, you know, sort of waking up one morning and realize, right, realizing that I've taken the quote-unquote safe path and I'm deeply unhappy, I'm deeply unsatisfied, like I have a lot of talents that I haven't even explored, a lot more that I could have given to the world, but I haven't, right? So for me, I think that's the more dangerous path. Um, and 
really like honestly I, I don't really take it I, I don't really see any other option um, than than sort of the path that I'm, 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 I'm on right now even if it seems very sort of scattered and yeah and, and risky I guess. <laughs> Um, so one of the things you've done is you've created a, uh, uh, I guess, a niche fashion sort of line mm -hmm. uh, company. Um, and fashion is very, you know, it's experiencing that industry, huge amounts of disruption that it has not seen before. And a lot of it mm -hmm. was actually um, brought on by COVID-19 and, um, and, you know, was accelerated. So you've seen lots of fashion lines, companies close during this time period. So Talk to talk to us about the decision to jump into that industry, its future, and and you know, how do you manage that risk? Or um, will you all you know? Should I expect to see you as the next you know Yves Saint Laurent walking down the you know the, the walkway? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Uh, so so first of all, like before I go into that, right? Like recently with sort of the upheaval that's going on in the industry, I've been getting a lot of these questions, like you know, what are your thoughts on the fashion industry? And then it just hit me like, oh yeah, I've been in the fashion industry for the last, <laughs> what, five years, right? So, so again, it, it comes back to what we're saying where I never really considered myself as being in the fashion industry, right? So sort of the way that um, Maison Le Porem, my brand, um, the brand that I co-founded came about was that um, when, I was in, when I was in my MBA, um, again, like you'd mentioned, I went right from McMaster to the joint uh, MD MBA at McGill. So I was 21 years old. I was very young in my MBA and I really looked it, right? Like I looked really young. And so I thought, you know what? Um, I was so excited to be there. And I thought, you know, business, I have to dress, you know, like a businessman and look serious so people could take me seriously. So I started wearing a suit every day to class, right? And I loved, like, I was very passionate about, about clothing. My mom's a fashion designer. So that came naturally to me. Oh. But that decision to sort of wear a suit every day, um, anyways, it didn't work in the sense that the moment I started talking, people knew I didn't know what I was talking about and they didn't take me seriously. But, but what happened was that, what happened was that um, I sort of became the go-to guy, right? If you needed any advice on, 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 on men's, classic menswear, so suits, shirts, ties, pockets, all that stuff. And a couple of friends, a couple of my classmates planted it into my head. They're like, dude, if you do this, like we'll actually pay you, you know, to dress us up. Um, and I didn't take, think too much of it at the time, but what I started noticing, which comes to your question, um, was that the service in a lot of the, the fashion houses or, or the, the retail, retail stores was really, really poor, mm -hmm. right? The service was poor, the quality wasn't that great. Um, the, the salespeople, a lot of them were not as knowledgeable about the specific like sort of niche of, of classic menswear, right? And so basically I just decided, you know what, I was gonna create um, something that I would be proud to refer someone to, right? Um, and, and really that's, that's just sort of how it started. Um, and I just started like, you know, going to people's homes or their offices with fabric swatches and, and going there to, to you know, show them what I have and making customized clothing for them. So now coming, speaking about what's happening. So, so just that, that was the context yeah. for how I got into the industry, right? Um, so speaking about what is happening in fashion industry, I think in the long term it's going to be fantastic because I think this is an industry that has, in a sense, created a monster where there has been so much focus on fast fashion, right. so much focus on really poor quality but high volume, 
right? So much focus on very, very low margins, which means that in the production, there's definitely um, something else going on that, that, that's not, you know, apparent to everyone else. So I think the industry needed this, right? Um, Phil Knight, who is the founder of Nike, he has this, this, this quote that he loves to say. He says, Nike is a marketing company, but our most important product, our most important marketing tool is our product. Right. Right. And I think that is generally the overall sentiment in the fashion industry, right? Like marketing plays such a key role. But I think what's happened is that a lot of brands have forgotten that their product and their customer service is the most important marketing tool. Right. And they've ignored that and just focused more on the marketing while, you know, creating these cheap, very poor quality goods. So before the, the pandemic, one thing that we did at Maison Le Porem was, first of all, we in, I believe, late 2016 or 2017, we opened um, our, like we opened a showroom. And if you walk in, you have very, very little clue that it is actually a clothing store, yeah. right? Because we don't hold, we hold very, very little in terms of inventory. 90% of our, of, of, of our sales are made to order, right? So again, that, that sort of hops on that sustainability angle. Um, another thing we did at that point was that we upgraded all of our, all of our production. We moved all of our production and fabric sourcing to Europe. Mm -hmm. um, and we started to educate the customers, right? We we're like, look, you're better off spending $1,500 on one suit than spending $2,000 on two suits. And this is how you can get the best out of that one. And it was very, very counterintuitive at the beginning, right? Where it's like, you're telling your customers to buy less, right? Right. Um, and then we started putting a lot, a lot of emphasis on the store experience, right? Where people actually, so people started coming with their spouses because it was so much fun. You sit down, you're alone in the store, it's by appointment only, you have a beverage and, you know, you're taken care of by someone who's also educating you about the whole process. So I think that's the shift that has to happen, right? So if either you go completely online or if you're going to have like retail space, it has to be more. It can't just be like a very poor, low customer service experience anymore. So all in all, all that to say, like, we're going to hurt in the short term for sure. But I think in the long term, it's actually a good thing for the industry and indeed for the for the environment, because I think sustainability needs to start being top of the agenda. So do you find it hard to, to um, you know, do that part of your passion from your where you are? Like, you know, you're not in Montreal right now. You're in Nigeria. So yeah. how, how, do yeah. you, how, do you, how do you run a business, you know, in a different continent? Yeah, honestly, that's that's been the hardest part. Uh, well, one of the hard parts of of, of leaving, um, of moving back here, because I mean, I gave I gave everything to that business, mm -hmm. and I actually loved the business, and I loved the customers, right? Like I made some fantastic friendships from just from people who were customers at the beginning. Um, so I really, really miss that part. Um, thankfully, I have like uh, partners who have been basically running the business in the last year. I have barely been involved in the actual operation of the business in the last, um, say, 14, 15 months now. So it's kind of nice to have people you can trust and, you know, who are who understand the vision. Um, yeah, but I really, really do miss it. <laughs> so earlier you talked about, you know, your when you were 10, you had a master plan. So was medicine on that plan back when you were a young 10 year old, or was it something that slowly evolved your interest in, in becoming a doctor? Yeah. So, so that, that master plan was actually the end of that master plan, right. Was to come back to Africa and build 
a healthcare company, right? Like, uh, you know, at the time I thought, you know, I want to build a line of hospitals. Um, so yeah, so, so that was sort of the, the, the point where I decided I wanted to go into medicine. Um, I, I had, I was in boarding school. I was in boarding school for six years um, growing up. And I remember like at the time when I was 10 years old, I had like a very serious bout of malaria. Um, but one of the benefits that came out of that was that I was excused from classes for, I think, about a week or, or even maybe more. So I was in the clinic and just basically spending time with the doctor and, and nurses there. So that was like really my first very close, you know, long time, long term, you know, contact with, with, with the healthcare space. Um, and at the time, I remember an, an English teacher had suggested a book called Gifted Hands. Mm-hmm. Right, which was sort of about you know this this kid from um, inner city Detroit, you know, who wasn't doing really well at school, and then his mother, who was uneducated, sort of impressed on him the importance of reading, and then he became. Anyways, long story short, he ended up being the um, head of pediatric neurosurgery um, at Johns Johns Hopkins University um, Hospital at the age of 33, um, became the first uh, lead neurosurgeon to separate Siamese twins conjoined at, at, the, at the back of the head. So it was just such an inspiring autobiography. And for me, that was kind of the moment where I clicked that, you know what, this is sort of what I want to commit my life to. Um, and then again, growing up in Nigeria and seeing like the very stark difference between public healthcare and private healthcare, um, you know, and seeing how like, you know, if you really want to create something of very high quality, it has to be on that private healthcare side. So that was kind of where that the dream of, of sort of being a doctor, but also an entrepreneur in the healthcare space started. Um, so yeah, so even though that master plan, you know, has deviated, what hasn't changed has been the ultimate goal which is kind of, you know, incredible to see. Yeah. And so I think, um, I think most people don't even realize, I think that you can do an MBA and an MBA combined, right? Like that's a new sort of program. I mean, it's been around for a while, but most people probably don't know that. Is that why you went to McGill for that program? Like you wanted to have the business and the medicine together. So you could come back and at the time you thought build hospitals. Now you're running, um, an organization that's going to focus on kidney and making kidney health important. Exactly. Exactly. So, so actually the, the so, so at, at um, McMaster, I, I majored in, in psychology, neuroscience and behavior. Right. And my thinking at the time was like, I had a passion for medicine and I had a passion for business. Right. And I wanted uh, like an, an undergrad degree that will be useful for me in my life generally, but also something that I could really, really enjoy. Right. Because I wanted to enjoy like my undergrad years. Um, and it turned out like I when I got introduced to psychology, like introductory psychology, my first year, I realized like this was such a powerful tool that would help me in medicine and help me in business. So when it was sort of getting to the point of, 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 you know, applying for medical schools, I really was not, I wasn't very confident um, in my ability to get in, um, especially because I was an international student, right? And as you know, like um, not many medical schools across Canada accept international students. Mm-hmm. And so my thinking was that I was actually going to go into business, like, you know, do an MBA and all of that. And then later on, you know, go, go to medical school. And then just by searching, I found this program. Like I didn't even know the program existed either at the time. And I just realized like, look, I have to do this or nothing else. And that ended up being the, the only thing I applied to, the only program I applied to. And thankfully I, I got in. You have a lucky star, I think. <laughs> so if we're gonna, what advice would you give to graduating students now as they per- 
prepared to leave, you know, the academic world and enter a very different world now that we're, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, what kind of advice mm. do you think you'd, you'd offer them? Yeah. Um, I, I like to talk in three, so I'll give them three, three minutes, uh, three main pieces of advice, right? Um, the first one I would say is that your education begins when you finish school. Right, if that makes any sense. Um, and, you know, so, so just really what I found is that, you know, we have this tendency or this, um, yeah, this tendency, I guess, to, to sort of think that once we're done school, we, we stop educating ourselves, right? And I think that's a major mistake. I think really that's a time where you really, really need to start learning really about life, right? And, and, and you can do that, I think, in two main ways. Um, one of them is by reading. Right. I find that a lot of people just stop reading after school mm -hmm. and it is young people, old people, like people are not reading as much as I think we should like reading about diverse topics, trying to understand what's going on in the world around you. And very, very importantly, trying to trying to see what the future is going to look like. Right. So trying to read to observe patterns about where the world is going to look like, because I think that's really where value is going to be created. Right. And then the second way to, you know, really educate yourself is just by experience. Right. Um, I think, you know, I, some 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 people may disagree with me on this, but I think a lot of us that are fortunate enough to have a higher education, we sort of grew up in a sterilized Petri dish um, educational system, right, where we're fortunate, we have parents who care for us, parents who can provide for us, parents who can protect us. And that protection also meant protecting us from real life. So again, I think experience is so important. Start a business, like do things that, you know, are not necessarily in a curriculum, right? So, so that's that. Um, the, second, the second piece of advice I'll give is around purpose, right? Um, and I know this has become sort of a cliche, right? Like finding your purpose, finding, you know, your meaning or whatever. But I think it's so important. My, my marketing prof at McGill used to say, cliches are cliches because they're true. Right. Like, I think it's so it's so important to, like, really commit to finding your purpose. Right. And again, just to give give, you know, sort of practical advice. I think one of the things that I would really, really advise is after school, you know, even if you get a, a good job or whatever, try to stay lean as lean as possible in terms of your lifestyle. Right. Because like if you have to stay at your parents place for long, do it. I'm sorry, parents. I know you want to get rid of those kids. But, you know, if you have that, yeah. but if you have that privilege, right, if you have that, like just stay lean in your lifestyle. Right. So that you can afford to sort of if you're in, in a situation where, you know, you're in a job that's not aligned to your purpose or whatever, like there's nothing wrong with leaving and, and really, you know, just doing things that may not necessarily give you that reward in terms of financial reward right away, but it's helping you, you know, lead towards that purpose. And then the last one, which kind of comes to what one of your early questions were, right, is that the journey is the destination, mm -hmm. right? So remember I told you about that, my master plan, right? I'm so happy that it's not panning out exactly as I'd imagined it because really that journey is what matters, right? That journey is what, like, it's what it's, it's, it's what gives life its color, right? So just re remembering that, you know, you need to enjoy the moment. Um, I mean, I remember before I got into med school, I thought getting into med school and I'll be the happiest person in the world and that'll be it. And then getting into med school is like, when I finish, I'll be, and that'll be it, you know? And so just really enjoy that journey. Um, take your time. Don't be in a rush. Don't feel like you need to follow someone else's path. Just follow your own path and enjoy every moment of it.
Um, and enjoying it doesn't mean it's not going to be miserable, right? Like that's, that's life. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but what happens is that, and, and speaking to a lot of successful people as well, is that they look back at those difficult periods, those periods of misery, if you will, and they miss it, right? They miss the simplicity of it. Um, so, so yeah, so that's it. Education begins after school. Find your purpose, no matter what it takes. And the journey is the destination. So enjoy it. Oh, that's great advice. So what's next for you? Where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Uh, that's a loaded question. I hope this doesn't come back to haunt me, my answer to this, but we're really, um, what, what I see right now is just, you know, being, being at the helm or, or building uh, an organization that will be affecting positively um, supporting um, hundreds of thousands of people who are suffering from chronic kidney disease across, across Africa and potentially across the world. Um, so, so yeah, so I think that's where I see myself sort of, you know, um, building a, a very, very influential um, healthcare organization that will be focused on access to health problems, whether it's even gone broader than kidney failure, who knows, but um, yeah, I think that's, that's definitely where I'll be in somewhere in there in the next five years. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're rapid, getting close to the end of our, our interview. So I'm going to do a couple of uh, rapid fire questions to know, get to know you a little bit more. So never All mind. Right. Favorite <laughs> memory of McMaster. Whew, this is a tough one. Am I allowed to speak of my wild nights at 1280 on this uh, podcast? Hey, you know, I, I had some wild nights at the downstairs. Gym back in the day. So, yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> uh, actually, I think I think my my favorite memory would probably be um, I did this this practicum in my third year, I believe it was, right, where we worked with the um, brain injury brain injury society of Hamilton. Um, and I remember I had a team, there were three of us, and we were assigned to sort of a patient who were helping using like neurocognitive exercises to help his, his, his cognition. Um, and I think that that whole process, um, you know, of working on that and the camaraderie with the team and also obviously the impact on, on the patient as well, that that's probably my favorite moment. Like I just remember those car rides to his place and back and just how, you know, we're just having the time, time of our lives. It was, it was a really good, good, good time. So you talked about your love of reading or encouraging people to read. So what book or yeah. books are you reading right now? Okay. So, so I left, I left McKinsey, what, two months ago. So I've sort of been on a, on a reading binge, right? Cause I, I was a bit starved of, of, of the time to read for the last little bit. So right now, right now I'm reading um, the four disciplines of execution, um, which kind of talks about, you know, how to, like change management, right? Like how to implement a very significant project within an organization. Um, prior to that, I read uh, Alibaba, The House That Jack Ma Built by Duncan Clark. Um, prior to that, I read How I Built This by Guy Raz. And prior to that, I read The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. All right. So yeah, <laughs> and a binge. <laughs> yeah. What living person do you most admire? Hmm. Um, I'll probably say my, my mentor, my mentor, Dr. Arvind Joshi, who's um, this phenomenal, phenomenal gentleman that I met in 2013. Um, he used to be the, the CEO of a hospital in Montreal called St. Mary's Hospital. And then he led the um, obstetrics and gynecology department at McGill for a bit before his retirement. So 
um yeah he's probably the one i admire the most just i just love his his um his outlook on life he's retired now but he's the most he's sort of the youngest person i know in terms of his outlook and his thought process right like he's very optimistic about the future believes a lot in young people um and yeah very very open-minded as well and always 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 supportive of everyone around like i've never heard him say a bad word about anyone so you know when i think of what i want to be at a certain stage in my life i just i just picture him like that yeah so what's your idea of perfect happiness hmm that's a good one i read i read a quote recently that um, life is joyful participation in the service of the world. <laughs> and, so, and so when you ask this, this idea of perfect happiness, um, I, I think for me, really, it's, it's really just, just building, right? Like I've, I've realized that I'm, I'm happiest when I'm creating stuff, right? Whether it's a company, whether it's, you know, a concept, whatever it is. So again, I think my idea of, I don't know if perfect happiness exists, but like my idea of that perfect happiness is building um, something that will that will outlive me um, and that will create a lot of, of of impact in terms of people's ability to access good high quality healthcare um, on my continent, um, but also sort of having the time to to mentor people and do do the things I love doing, right? Which is like you know my dabbling in fashion, um, reading, public speaking, and stuff like that. So I think ultimately just doing that, but also having a well rounded um, well-rounded, rounded life is, would be my idea of uh, perfect happiness. And lastly, one song that best describes your time at McMaster. Oh, that's an easy one. Um, okay. Levels, Levels by Avicii. Ah, okay. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a song of my whole undergrad. I love that song. Okay. All right. Yeah. Well, Collins, thank you so much for spending some time with us. And I wish you a lifetime of creation. I love the way that you talked about that and, you know, building and creating. And I know we're going to keep an eye and see what you end up doing because you've done so much in the very short time that you were an undergrad from your days of graduation um, to now. And uh, I really admire this uh, passion of yours to, you know, solve, make many lives a whole lot better in the healthcare um, for people that you care about. And I think that came through today. Thank you so much, Karen. Honestly, this has been a massive honor for me. Um, and I just cannot be grateful enough to McMaster because I think, you know, I am who I am today and who I'll be in however many years from now because of that foundation I got at McMaster. Thank you so much. Thank you.